Oh, you guys, my internet is so bad. I did not catch that thing y'all just said. Yeah, we didn't lose you, yeah, Adam. we didn't lose you. Really? That's, that's a no, win. we, we yeah, saw that's a your win. whole stress out. We saw the whole... It's <laughs> <laughs> <was> like, no! <laughs> <laughs> it was all there, brother. It's midnight, and you're listening to Midnight Theology, a podcast where we talk all things Christianity, leadership, culture, and life as they relate to the Wesleyan Methodist movement and pretty much whatever else we want to talk about. I'm your host today, Larry Frank, and I'm joined by Gabe Wank. Hello there. Sarah Wank. Hey, y'all. And Adam Penn. Howdy. So grab a drink, maybe a blankie, settle on in. Let's do this. So uh, last month, we were live in Jerusalem with our fabulous guide and friend, Mick Tahan. Uh, what a great trip that was. Um, uh, so I just thought we'd check in, post that, and see what y'all have been up to since and what kind of lasting impressions you have uh, from the trip. So what's, uh, what's sticking with you? Wow, that's a, that's a loaded question. There's so many thoughts. Um, you just go through like the picture roll in my mind of all the places um, you know, this time for me, it was my second time to the Holy Land, and uh, I felt like I had at least more, a little bit more capacity to try to articulate what I was witnessing, seeing, feeling. You know, I took more pictures and video and shared those uh, via Facebook, just my personal page. And a lot of people followed those posts uh, daily. And as if they were on the trip with me, and a lot of responses since then on that. And it just, you know, the first time around, I could not post, I couldn't process all of those emotions and just the sense of presence. I'm where Jesus walked. I'm where mm. God inter interacted and intersected in very tangible ways with humanity. I'm in those locations, and I'm just speechless. Mm. It's it's a real thing. It happens. I mean, I know Sarah and the rest of you would probably say that's not possible, but I was uh, just speechless. So this time, I miss Mick, Abe, our driver, our guide, you know, and, and just being together and and uh, inhabiting those spaces. But um, yeah, it's just it's sitting with me. I'll tell you, it took it took a while to kind of come back from the trip, if you know what I mean. Um, just kind of being being there, and then it kind of sits with you, and you're you know, when you have that expansion of your worldview, uh, when you're face to face with uh, Palestinians and uh, Israelis and Jordanians and just all the different culture, you know, outside of the trip and travel, uh, and you're seeing where they live and where they walk to work and to school and, uh, and just all of that, you're like, you know what, this is a whole, this is a cultural experience happening in addition to a spiritual experience. Um, and so that just sits with me. Now I'm back in my context of the Quad City area, uh, Moline, Davenport, East Moline. There's a lot of culture around here, too, that sometimes we, you know, myself, I'm blinded to because, you know, we're stuck in our patterns, our rhythms. And so I think I'm more aware of the culture around me and the diversity. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think for me, uh, being that it was my first time there, um, the, the main thing that will stick with me is I'll never read the Bible the mm -hmm. same. You know, uh, of course, we went right before Easter, and so you're preaching through the Gospels and the Jesus story, and you can see it, you know, and, and I think that's probably the, the biggest thing now. It's, it's going to change my preaching forever um, because I, I feel like I can kind of now bring people there with me, at least, you know, through my preaching um, as I describe the places and, 
you know, I can kind of visualize the story better myself. I think it hel- it'll help me as a preacher to, you know, enter into the biblical narrative uh, with more depth um, and uh, hopefully uh, improve um, my preaching. So that's that's probably the biggest thing that stuck with me other than the, the things Gabe really, I think, articulated well about just the experience of going to the Holy Land. Um, so I'll echo everything you said, Gabe, um, but, uh, you know, just kind of add that for, for myself. So... Yeah, I think I shared when we were with Mick that uh, being my fourth trip, it was l- less pilgrimage this time and more of a homecoming. Like, I, I know people there. I know my way around some places. We got to do some things that we don't normally do. Um, like uh, when just uh, our group uh, plus our friend Megan was uh, singing in the Church of mm-hmm. St. Anne. Uh, it was just a cool um, worship time. I think what I've done though, coming back is I've paid more attention to what's going on there. This is the first time in 33 years, um, that, uh, Easter Passover and Ramadan all hit at the same time. Uh, and it's been really tense (laughs) since we've left in the old city. Like we were walking around the old city freely, no issues. Um, and the temple Mount has been closed several times now. Um, you know, there's been tear gas and rubber bullets and Damascus gate, uh, has been under occupation for a little bit, like places that we were walking freely. Uh, and it has just, I guess, reawakened my awareness to, to how precarious the situation, uh, uh, can be there. Uh, and thankfully Mm -hmm. uh, Easter is not a time when there's tourists, uh, in the, in the Holy land because everybody wants to be with their church Mm -hmm. at Easter. Um, and, and it only happens every 33 years that the, the three religions there uh, all have their, their high holy days at the, uh, at the same time. So that's, that's just been an interesting awareness since we came back. Um, and then uh, I'm reminded of the trip every day since uh, uh, most of us, <coughs> Adam, uh, got permanent uh, souvenirs of yeah. our Holy Land trip. <coughs> we, uh, went to uh, Razuk Tattoo Shop, which has been there since like 1300, like 28 generations of the same family tattooing pilgrims. And uh, they just had a great article in the New York mm-hmm. Times about um, Razuk Tattoo Shop and, and things that they're doing there. Um, and uh, I've kept in touch with Wasim, the uh, the father, the principal owner. Um, now and it was just a, an incredible experience. It had to have been a cool experience for Adam, even not getting the the tattoo. Just 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 being there, you know, hanging out. He's if you if you could see video right now, he's showing off his pendant that he bought. Um, I, I did get a beautiful pendant based on one of the stamps yep. that they would tattoo. So that it's that was pr- it's my pretty similar to my concession. stamp, isn't it? It's, yeah, it is. It's almost yeah. exactly what you got on your arm. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. and I wear it. I actually have not taken it off since we left. Aww. So yeah. Aww. Yeah. What about you, Sarah? Uh, you know, I think what's lingering with me is uh, twofold. Uh, one is um, the joy of being a pastor and watching the lights come on for other people. Uh, you know, yeah. <clears throat> the first pilgrimage, you're so consumed with trying to capture it all, see it all, document it all. You get back to the hotel at dinner time and you're busy journaling and writing things down and selecting pictures and you're literally exhausted and and though um there were folks there experiencing that with you this time getting to sort of sit back and watch them go whoa that's what it's like um kind of gives me fuel as pastor um uh, as as you watch people experience awakening essentially right uh the other piece is Mm -hmm. after the year we have all had or should i say the years we have all had especially with covid um, the, some of the things that I'm taking with me that just gave me fuel personally 
um, was actually like the free time to just enjoy um, the cities, um, Tiberias and uh, and then the old city of Jerusalem. Um, I I think I crave street shawarma every day because um, oh my goodness. <laughs> Our Midnight Theology group and uh, Megan <laughs> stumbled upon maybe the best shawarma we've ever had outside of the Damascus Gate or uh, wishing that instead of like strolling my neighborhood at night, which is lovely, you know, that we could just stroll the, seats, the streets of the old city and get some pomegranate juice and just take it all in. Um, the, f- the free time moments of just relaxing and breathing and being in the place Jesus was and uh, walking into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre at, late at night, you know, um, those things mm-hmm. gave me personal, like, they were personal refreshment, you know, to me. That then I think gave us all strength to come back and push through Holy Week and Easter, a little bit strung out and tired from the trip. So when you say, what have we been up to? I think I think we would all say surviving Holy Week and Easter and recovering from it. <laughs> so that's what I've been up to. <laughs> I'm on paternity leave, so uh, yeah, yeah. I, I may I may have had the holiest holy week I've had in a decade. So uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Minus regular that, sleep, right? And, no and regular sleep for you. But that's a, that's a whole other podcast um, on uh, how, how to keep Holy Week holy for clergy. Ooh, um, that, that's a good so, idea for next. Have year, a maybe. baby and go on paternity leave. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's one that's, solution. Uh, how do you keep Holy Week holy? Have a baby. <laughs> yeah, that 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 could. That could do it. I mean, I, I felt like I needed to like really catch up on sleep when I got back because uh, Adam and I shared a room together oh. and there was only one bed uh, in the room and the couch initially did not appear to pull out into a bed. So I, from our patio, I pulled in a chase lounge and I slept on patio furniture all week till the night we were packing up. One of the cushions got flipped up on the couch and I realized that it would pull out from the bottom. It was not a lift out. Um, so, yeah. That so sucked. he slept on that chase lounge all week, only to discover that he could have had a much more comfortable sleeping arrangement at the very end like of the week. Literally, the bus is coming to take us to the airport when I realized it, and Adam's <laughs> on the floor laughing like a little girl. I <laughs> collapsed. I just collapsed into hysterics. <laughs> it was so, so nice of you to let Adam have the bed, though, on his first pilgrimage. You're so good. Such well, a good I mean, don't don't ascribe me to sainthood yet. Uh, we also only had one bed in the Tiberius Hotel, uh, so he got the pullout couch in Tiberius, and I took the the bed. I wasn't doing that. Although too. it was better than a chase lounge. Yeah, it was, yeah, we, it was better um, than a chase lounge. <laughs> so, so when you're, when you're the trip leader, especially like post COVID, um, the, the hotels like do a little upgrade and, and stuff. And I was used to that. They gave Adam and I like the honeymoon suite though, which was a little <laughs> weird for like, like it was definitely meant for a couple. Like there was information laying out about couples massages and, um, uh, yeah, to be so really we, clear, you had, had an out. Uh, uh, we may have volunteered to switch rooms with you, so you would both have a bed, and you that was quickly turned me down. So that was in Jerusalem. I'm just saying. <laughs> and I, I was already laying down at that point. I wasn't getting back up again. The, the, the shade so, lounge was already committed. And we had already moved rooms once. That was our second room. Yeah, the first it room, was because um, uh, for those listening, the uh, they don't turn air conditioning on until like June ish and it was pretty hot in the hotel everybody else had their windows open adam and i's first room um the window faced into the dining room yeah, like the indoor so we could open it but but it was just the it was the same indoor air coming in and we had the lights off um 
and just sitting there and sitting there not even speaking just hoping the temperature would go down and it was still like 80 something mm-hmm. in that room so we finally asked for for a new room uh, so I wasn't going to ask for another new room I was not moving my luggage again and I was already committed to the chainsaw <laughs> so so this is a beautiful segue into our main topic today That's right uh, moving rooms yes so we're going we're going to talk about uh today, something that affects uh, many United Methodists this time of year. For some, it's a giant sense of relief. For others, it's the most dreaded phone call ever. We're talking about pastors moving, or in metho-nerd speak, itineracy. And if you've been a United Methodist for more than five minutes, and all of us on this podcast happen to be United Methodist, you likely know at least something about what we call itineracy. Itineracy, very simply, is the concept that United Methodist pastors commit themselves to serve at the pleasure of the bishop. And in return, the bishop appoints us to our ministries after prayerful discernment uh, between the bishop uh, and the cabinet. And we've all had experience with the your moving phone call. Uh, and if you're a layperson listening, you know what it's like to hear that announcement on a Sunday morning uh, that your pastor uh, will be moving. Um, so just really briefly, why don't we each share um, about our most recent experiences uh, with the, the itinerant system uh, and, a, and appointment making, how that's hit us. And I think Adam gets to go first because Drum roll, please. he's the one who just got the call. Yeah, so I am actively in the process of moving. I know you all uh, who are listening cannot see it, but uh, there are moving boxes in the background of my Zoom call right now. Uh, as I'm in the process of packing my office up here at the church, I've been reappointed uh, to be t- serving as associate pastor at Morton United Methodist Church, effective July 1st. And it uh, is always a bittersweet thing, right? You know, because you have excitement about the future possibilities that lay ahead. Um, but we've been here at Armstrong now for five years, and so there's also grief wrapped up in that. It's the uh, only place our boys know is home. Our oldest son was a year and a half old when we first moved here, um, and so there's there's you know grief in the goodbyes and excitement in the the new hellos and and possibilities and ministry opportunities that lay ahead. So it's really just kind of uh, that that double edged sword and that mixture. Uh, of emotions that accompanies any sort of life transition. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we're currently in the process of packing everything up, and we also have neglected to have any sort of garage sales or anything for five years. So we are currently trying to get rid of five years' worth of baby supplies and kids' stuff and toys, and it's a bit overwhelming, uh, but we are we are doing it. So if you want to come to my house and just take my things, please Is there a dinosaur section to the garage sale, or do the boys keep all of the dinosaurs? There is a dinosaur section, but do not tell our youngest that. (laughs) (laughs) He he is not aware that there's a dinosaur section. (laughs) We've been putting like blankets over the tables in the garage as we set things up, just so like you know, so we don't have to have those conversations. (laughs) Yeah, that would not go well in our household either. And Hudson's got a few years on Judah, so Uh, you said come take anything. We'll take the boat. It's Oh yeah! Ooh. Oh yeah! There you go. Yes. <laughs> Just kidding. The, the mighty Mississippi needs some exploring. Uh, yes. Jk. Yeah, we're selling our JK. boat too. So if you if you want a boat, hit me up. <laughs> <laughs> you just plugged your boat. Saying I did. <laughs> oh, Pretty God. sure we're gonna lose our not for profit. Hey, listen, uh, <laughs> past pastors who are itinerant uh, face a lot of challenges. 
in in itineracy, one of them is having to adapt what you own, right, with every move mm. to fit in the new context. So yeah. uh, the boat doesn't fit anymore, you know? It's, it's very part true. of the consequences of itineracy. Yep. Bless yep. his heart. <laughs> uh, I, so I would say uh, we're on, Gabe and I are on the uh, most recent move compared to Adam, uh, uh, having uh, been reappointed last summer. Uh, and so Gabe and I um, have been at our new appointment for just under a year, having moved um, mid-summer of 2021, while we were also uh, really pregnant <laughs> uh, and uh, in the throes of COVID things too. Um, and so it was a, uh, as Adam said, Every move is bittersweet. I'm a United Methodist preacher's kid. I have lost track of the number of times that we have moved and been called to new churches. And Gabe has even more moves under his belt than me. Um, and every time, right, you go, I can't imagine leaving this community. Um, and yeah. yet I'm excited at the possibility of what's ahead. And it's amazing to me every time how uh, the Holy Spirit works. Um, there are complicated situations. There are great situations, but the Holy Spirit seems to, you know, be in them all. Uh, we were in a, a spot that was really great for our family. We had been there for five, uh, six years, six years at uh, Crossroads in Washington and then in Morton. Um, and it was hard to imagine, you know, leaving them. Uh, however, you get to the new place and after some time of adjustment, uh, it's amazing how quickly it feels like home and you go, I can't imagine leaving here, right? That, um, and, and it's also, it's equally fascinating to watch the congregations as you leave go, what are we going to do without you? Uh, we, we can't imagine, you know, Crossroads or Christchurch or Morton or wherever it is. We can't imagine them without you. And then, um, uh, uh, they attach to the new pastor in a new way, right? That leaves them within a few months or a year saying, oh my gosh, what would we have ever done if you hadn't come to be with us? And uh, it's really it's really kind of cool to watch that process, how relationships change, the dynamics change, uh, but new relationships and connections are formed that are equally valuable. So the itineracy, um, I know it comes with lots of mixed feelings, uh, but for me, it has been a gift in allowing my church family to grow, right? Every every new church, every new community we've moved to, um, though it has come with, sometimes with significant pain, um, has also come with, I can't imagine my life without these people having been added to it. And um, and I consider that a great gift of itineracy. Yeah, and each pastor... Beautifully said. Yeah, definitely, because each pastor brings unique gifts and graces that shape a congregation, and every move and transition is an, is an opportunity for a congregation to grow in different ways, depending on you know which pastor is, is uh, caring for that congregation. So um, having, you know, versus a congregational model where you might have the same pastor at a church for 20 to 30 years, right? Maybe their entire career, um, they can become extremely dependent on the pastor, whereas a, a lot of United Methodist churches get a sense of who they are uh, apart from a pastor because of our itinerant system. So that's, that's one of the benefits of, of that. And yeah. we can talk about that a little bit later um, why that is and why why the United Methodist Church tends to be more lay-driven than a lot of other denominations. So, yeah. 
yeah, I look forward to getting there because the why of it is is beautiful and I am sure we will get to the complications of it and some of the the difficulty and pain in it too not just for the congregations but also for the pastors it is not an uncomplicated uh, situation but it is it, it, it has its benefits it truly is a double-edged sword I, I heard someone say as they were making the announcement that their their very beloved pastor was moving last summer um the staff parish person, as they introduced it, said the beautiful thing about being a United Methodist is you get to meet a lot of pastors. The <laughs> terrible thing about being a United Methodist is you get to meet a lot of pastors. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it, there, there's that double-edged uh, sword to it, and we will um, we will get there. So my my most recent move was here to Tremont. So I'm the I'm the longest tenured uh, on the group, and we actually. Um, it was tied to another Holy Land trip. We were back in the country, uh, Brittany and I, for less than 24 hours when I got the call. Um, and we were fairly certain that I'd be moving. I had been serving as an associate pastor. Um, I, was, I was edging into that territory where it, was, um, where it would be okay uh, to move me. Um, they try not to move us around every year anymore. Um, <laughs> we'll talk about Wesley in a minute. He, he, he really believed that a year was too long. <laughs> to leave a pastor in place. Um, so thank God we're not still under that tutelage. Um, but uh, so we, we got the call and it was like you guys have said, it was very bittersweet. There was instantly this flood of um, we love our home. We love the community. Uh, there's good things going on at the church. How's this person going to react when I tell them? Um, and at Wesley, it was it was really a beautiful announcement where I was serving um, as I started um to announce, I could tell people knew that's what was coming. And it was kind of like mm -hmm. the air got sucked out of the room. But by the time I was done, they were applauding for me because they were like, of course, right? Like, he's been our associate pastor. He's not going to stay an associate pastor for um, forever. And uh, we were so over the moon to come to, uh, to Tremont. We knew we were probably going to move. Uh, I play um, appointment... Um, uh, I don't even know what you want to call it, but like roulette. I, I, no, <laughs> I, 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 I am pretty good at keeping track of uh, what churches are open uh, via retirement uh, and people requesting to move and guessing who's going to go there and playing the whole domino effect game and figuring it out. And, and Tremont was on my short list, so it was really kind of a, a dream come true uh, for us. So that's um, all. All of my appointments. Um, so far have, have been a huge blessing and where we needed to be personally at the time for our own growth, um, but also a really good match for, uh, for the churches for, for their growth. Yeah. But if you're listening and you've grown up in a, in a more of a call system where the church has um, uh, the authority to go out and find their pastor um, and, and hire someone or fire someone, uh, and then you become Methodist um, there's a there's always that question of why, uh, and it's probably the question that I get the most from lay people, especially this time of year, when they start knowing other Methodist churches where their pastor is moving, or in our context at Tremont, our associate pastor is retiring. Uh, so we're walking through that process uh, right now. Is <laughs> why do we have to do this? And um, it doesn't matter if you're from a call system. So you were uh, Larry. Larry came and preached uh, for me for us at Christ Church last weekend. Uh, it, while I was also making um, an appointment announcement at the end of the service about uh, losing our campus pastor uh, to a new appointment. And 
even people who have been lifelong Methodists, right, who have watched this process unfold, have said to me this week, I feel like the carpet's pulled out from under us again. Why do we have to do this? And so for some it is this the system is unfamiliar to us um and what's it about <clears throat> for others it is we've been part of the system but the emotion of it or the confusion of it is so disorienting that we find ourselves asking that why question every time the announcement isn't made i've had lifelong united methodists say this is sometimes the worst part of being a united methodist and it, it, yeah. it's still it's just the things of, of of grief and glory and we've gone there uh, so many times before. So, uh, and when we get get to the why, um, there's a difference between itineracy, which is our commitment as ordained clergy to go where the bishop sends us, and the appointment making process. There, there's it's it's they're related, but they're different from one another. We agree to go where the bishop sends us. In return, we're guaranteed an appointment. Uh, so, the, and that's a whole nother bag of worms talking about guaranteed appointment. Um, in, in the United Methodist Church, um, but it really does go back to um, back to John Wesley uh, when he was overseeing uh, all, you know hundreds of itinerating lay preachers um, in circuits throughout uh, Great Britain. Uh, he believed um, that the one of the principal strategies, missionary strategies, to sustaining the awakening was frequently to move pastors from one circuit to another. Uh, he wrote in a letter to Mr. Walker, were I myself to preach one whole year in one place, I should preach myself and most of my congregation to sleep, <laughs> denying it is the will of God that any congregation have one teacher only. Wesley mm. insisted that experience has taught that a frequent change of pastors is best. And so one year was That's it. And, insane. And, that, and it's still true that we are only appointed one year at a time that yeah. now our book of discipline says that the, the, the long-term needs of the church should be considered. So at least we're, we're understanding now that we're not circuit riders. Um, and it's a different situation than the Wesley's we're dealing with as the, as the, um, as the movement began to unfold, that it is very disruptive to a church to be moving that often, but we can be moved at any time. And that's just one of the one of the realities of it. Our bishop has said that if you've not been in place for five years and it ain't burning down, you ain't moving. Yeah. Uh, so five years is like that. That floor piece. I was only at Wesley for four years, though. I mean, so it's not a hard and fast um, rule. But so that that initial framework, though, comes from Wesley. Um, that the key mi- to the missionary strategy of continuing to grow. Uh, the movement was was um, being able to move those pastors uh, around. So that that's part of the why we're at. Uh, any thoughts on that? Should we talk about the difference between a circuit writer and a pastor real quick, though? Because you know, I I feel like they're two totally different things. That that it actually kind of made sense to move circuit writers the way Wesley did for the purposes of growing the movement versus the the role of a pastor as we conceive of it now would actually be harmful to move them that much. So, like, you know, circuit riders in the early Methodist church were uh, really, you had to have apostolic giftings um, or basically the ability to uh, be in a lot of different places, building a lot of different relationships, raising up leaders, launching new worshiping communities, you know, especially in the days of early American Methodism. Um, that was the role of a circuit rider, right? You know, they, they went from place to place developing leadership where they went, establishing 
um, new Methodist societies before the Methodist Episcopal Church was established. Remember, you know, Methodism was just a renewal movement within the Anglican Church, right? And so before it was ever a denomination, there were circuit riders who were just, you know, their purpose was to establish Methodist societies. So it makes sense that you would want to move them around a lot. And, you know, all of these societies, and eventually when they became churches, weren't heavily reliant on these circuit riders because they had lay people who really carried out the bulk of the ministry, right? You had lay preachers. Well, and the, and the, yeah, go ahead. In the, in, the early, in the early part of the movement, the circuit riders were lay people. Yeah, exactly. So, you know... It, yeah, it, you know, we're going to go down a, a rabbit hole potentially, right, of like... Um, uh, <laughs> Right, so Adam, I think what you're what you're saying is that like um, uh, circuit riders were very evangelistic, mm-hmm. uh, a very apostolic. Uh, we would call them now like entrepreneurs, right? Starters, mm-hmm. uh, and their job was to go from community to community, building up systems for churches to start. Um, in the process, providing some spiritual care to them, right, by preaching and providing sacraments and things like that, but letting the lay people do the work. And Wesley's design of saying nobody should stay more than a year worked really well when circuit riders were moving around so much anyway, and that that would be complicated if we applied the concepts of circuit riding to pastoral ministry now, where uh, churches are established and they don't change, they don't move. And, and actually what that stirs up in me, which is not about itineracy at all, is that I'm not sure it's a move for the better that churches became more pastor-dependent, uh, more stable, and more, like, professional. So we have professionalized the church and said, we're going to create these incredible institutions. Uh, we're going to assign professional pastors. They're going to, st- we want them to stay put forever. <laughs> and, um, and that's how we're going to do church. And we get frustrated that itineracy doesn't work maybe as well within the professionalism of the church, but the church was never meant to be professionalized, right? Mm. And and so in the process, we have lost the gift of what circuit writing and itineracy gave to us, which were nimble pastors who could plant churches and evangelize people and bring them to Christ and then let the lay people do the work. And so I recognize the tension, right, that we have uh, an itinerant system that is based on circuit writing, but we're dealing with uh, institutional, established, professional churches. Those things don't seem to go together, but I'm not sure it's because itineracy is wrong so much as the professionalism of the church is wrong, right? Um, yeah, one's uh, got to go. Yes. One has to go. But that, I, that's, that's exactly I, what I was going to get at. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would say that so, but I, I'm not sure that it. I'm not sure that it has to go. So, right. Um, I'm a preacher's kid. My whole life has been itineracy, parsonage living, changing churches, and there is a great gift that comes from what Wesley designed in this why. Because every time you receive a different pastor and a different pastor's family, your the level of the discipleship in the church can shift and change based on the gifts. Um, of that particular pastor. So one pastor comes in and they're really gifted at missions and service and they help grow the church that way. But they're not um, they're not as gifted in uh, small groups and accountability and the things of personal discipleship. So another pastor comes in 
And every person who's part of the stable, institutionalized church is then given an an opportunity and stretched in their own personal discipleship based on the call of the pastor, uh, the gifts of the pastor. And what Wesley would say is if, right, if I left you uh, over the 50 years of your lifetime in the church, if you only had, you know, one or two pastors and they they were gifted in things of mission um, and outreach, you might really be denied um, opportunities in your own faith development to be stretched by other pastors who would stretch you in new forms of discipleship. Essentially, he was saying, right, we would grow, grow stagnant in our faith if we didn't have pastors who could challenge us and push us based on their gift, different gifts and approaches to ministry. And I think he's absolutely right. Yeah, but I think the, the double-edged sword is that you're talking about it functioning at its best, like like what what you experience that is not the experience in many churches where you say oh the giftedness of this pastor is different with and I'm going to go down the guaranteed appointment rabbit hole um we have pastors out there who are guaranteed an appointment because they got through the ordination process who are killing churches um and they're guaranteed a job, so they get shuffled around every every so often. That does not benefit the church. That does not benefit that pastor. Uh, and thus far, we've just been re- we're really slow to try to transition um, some of those people. I think that the, what, what it was designed absolutely for a strong lay-led movement. But what we have is a is a pastor-centered structure in mm-hmm. in most of our churches, even. Even the Book of Discipline reads as pastor-centered uh, in that, and so the the situation's kind of the 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 opposite of what it was intended to be. It's 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 kind of a support network for for clergy unions, and I don't I don't know that Wesley would recognize no, much of what we call itinerancy today. There is unhealth in the system, right? But I don't know that we create a system. I don't know that we determine the health of a system based on the um, the extremes of a few on either end. Because though there are ineffective pastors and ineffective churches, there are ineffective churches that are harming pastors, right? Because they have not ended their time in ministry when they should have. They they are burning through pastors, right, um, uh, due to their own ill health. And I wouldn't want to make a decision based on all of Methodism because some unhealthy pastors and some unhealthy churches haven't been cut loose, right? For the majority of churches. Say, I don't, I, okay, go say it. Go ahead. I, I, the majority of, of, of like established, well-functioning Methodist churches have seen dozens or hundreds of pastors in and out of their doors, and they're still doing effective ministry. For some of our churches, upwards of 100, 150, 200 years have been doing effective ministry under the itinerant system and have done it well. Um, I will get to this, I'm sure. Uh, we have all seen abuse, unhealth in the church, both uh, having pastors done it to churches, but churches doing it to pastors, and I would say it's the exception, not the rule. That's where I would I would part with you. I when you say the majority of churches, when we look at the little pink sheet at annual conference every year, we see that we have had nothing but sustained decline. Uh, so the the system and you're blaming some, itineracy. No, I'm I'm blaming the whole thing. The entire right. thing need the the structure, the itineracy. I'm for itineracy. I am not for. I am not for when things are going well in a church, moving their path. Because all the research shows that long-term pastorates sustain growth. 
Sure. Saying and you, 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 you've done well for five years, now we're going to move you somewhere else is not a service to that local church. So we need to qualify. Uh, I think in our why, we need to explain something else too. So there's the why of the giftedness, the call of the pastor in the church, but there's also the why of system logistics. And uh, and I just went through this with some church members this week. So for those of you who might be unfamiliar with the system, it's not that our bishop and cabinet are looking around the conference going, who do we want to mess with this year? The process of itineracy and appointment making begins because there are a group of pastors who choose to retire uh, who leave on medical disability, family leave, they leave to different conferences and congregations, um, and they exit. And so you have uh, a, a handful of churches, right, who are without pastors, and a the bishop in the cabinet in any conference has a pool of pastors to choose from on how they will fill those empty slots, right? So then it literally just becomes a domino effect of um, this church is open, um, who is going to be their pastor? We only have a certain pool of pastors to pull from, so we have to move a pastor from one church to another to fill an empty spot, and then the domino effect happens, right? So it's not as if the bishop is going, gosh, that person's been there five years, we want to mess with them. More than likely, there has been an opening and they're called to that opening and it creates the domino effect of um, a sort of fallout, right? It creates a fallout. But like um, right now in the situation we're in, there are more retirees than there are incoming pastors, which makes that shuffling a little more dramatic, right? Than in years where we had a lot of incoming pastors. I think the main shift that's happened in our denomination is that we move from being a movement to being an institution, right? And when... Yes. You, you, right. right. So, like, it started as a movement. The itinerant system served a functional purpose for that movement that emphasized apostolic giftings. And now we find ourselves in an institution that emphasizes uh, shepherd-teacher giftings and I, yes. would, I would say Come actually de-emphasizes apostolic and evangelistic giftings, you know? Yeah. So, and, mm. and that's that's where I think that tension is, and that's where, I mean, it, I mean, if you're listening, we're not arguing with each other. Sarah and I have had this conversation a million <laughs> times together, and we love each other deeply. Spirited debate. Uh, part of this tension is we're, 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 I, I feel like itineracy as it functions right now is trying to force apostolic an apostolic system into uh, so a round peg into a square hole. Yep, mm -hmm. and that's yeah. I mean, so it's it's a both and both of them need reimagined. Here's what I what I love about itineracy is the accountability of it. Where I mean, mm -hmm. we've seen the trail of tears from Mars Hill and everything else, and I mean, Hillsong's imploding right now. Um, all this stuff with unchecked leadership and clergy. Because they become oligarchs and create systems around them where nobody can question their authority. My, I am not hired by my local church. I am appointed there by my bishop, and there is a level of accountability over me yes. that mm -hmm. I can't go rogue and do that. Mm -hmm. And it also protects the prophetic witness of the pulpit that my congregation can't turn around and fire me because I address gossip as a sin that's happening in the church. And I've had friends in the free church that that's happened to. They preached a, a sermon about gossip and got fired on Sunday night after a Sunday morning, said, we want you out of the parsonage on Monday morning. That doesn't happen in our system. That's what I love about it. What I hate most about it is not the 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 itineracy. What I hate most about it, and this will shock you, 
as much as I think it needs reimagined, what I cannot stand is pastors who have committed themselves to this system refusing to participate in the system. Preach, that, preach, that is, preach. That is not in line with our vows of ordination. And as long as you said, you put your hands on the Bible, the bishop put his or her hands on your head, and you said, I'll do this for you to willfully not submit to the authority of those appointed over you is sinful. Mm. I, 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 I claim it to like the, the military. I don't sign up for the military. Know how the military operates, right? And, uh, I don't know, in deploying folks and, and assigning them all over the world. I don't sign up for that. Take the signing bonus, go through boot camp. And then when they deploy me, go, I would, I'd prefer not to go there. My family's very happy where they are. And that's not going to make me any friends at the moment, but, um, the sense that we know exactly what we're getting into, right? And um, and people probably shouldn't complain to me about it, right? Or to Gabe, um, because we have endured more change, more transition than anyone could ever imagine. And right now, I can't mince words around it, you know? I mean, I dare somebody to look at me after what we endured in the last year of moving with a difficult uh, pregnancy and high-risk situations further from family, and for somebody to say, oh, I'm really comfortable where I'm at, makes me, yeah. I can't. That's I can't. baloney. That's baloney. We know what we signed up for, and at some point, we're trusting the sovereignty of God to work through the, the bishop and the cabinet. I understand there are mixed emotions about it, and people don't think the bishop and cabinet always have people's best interests at heart, and I think that is unfair and sinful because they've signed up to be discerning, right? And their hands are tied with some limited options. They have a certain number of churches to provide for and a certain number of pastors to, to care for. Uh, when one pastor leaves for any reason and they have to pull another pastor, they're not pulling you because they're trying to upend your life. They're pulling you because there is a need in the mission, right? Mm -hmm. And they need you to be deployed for the sake of the mission. Yep. And somehow in our professionalism of church, we've forgotten that. Gabriel. You said mission, and that's a good that's a good word. This whole thing with itineracy started as a missional strategy, and I know I'm yeah. speaking Larry's language because he's a strategist. Come on, man, come on. <laughs> <laughs> not that not that Adam and Sarah aren't, but like I just know that about Larry and Wesley believed that he was trying to go for this sustained awakening, the reawakening of the church in England. Wesley himself was going around and starting these societies, starting these groups of people, not trying to break away from the Church of England, but trying to encourage the church. And as that began, the Americas were beginning. And so, you know, uh, who was it? Uh, Coke and Asbury, they were over here uh, trying to do the same thing. And as the states were being formed, uh, the lay, there was not a lot of clergy over here. And so they were going around, taking half a state for three months, running around in a circuit and trying to encourage groups of people because the church is a group of people, right? The ecclesia, trying to get them engaged and growing in faith, loving one another, loving God, and just establishing the church on earth. It was about awakening, and to have that missional strategy of itineracy, it was to continue to keep it fresh. 
to continue to keep uh, that, that fresh, kind of the, the, the pull or the push of the Holy Spirit upon the main things and not to get stuck in the muck and mire of, of the same old thing uh, all the time. It was about inviting and convicting and offering Christ and building up uh, and doing a measure of good through each sermon. And there was only so many sermons because there was so much only so much training to go around at the time just because of the nature of life itself. And, and so listen, he expected he expected his pastors even then to sacrifice too, right? Those circuit right. riders yeah, were boy. being asked to endure sacrifice and difficulty and leaving their families behind and not getting married. And, um, and Wesley's expectation was that pastors would sacrifice sometimes their comfort and their family and their connections in order to serve that mission. And he was known to essentially say, if you can't, make that level of sacrifice, then maybe you're better off not being a pastor. Then, yeah, then don't um, sign up, yeah. Yeah, and that's yeah. what I was getting at. Like, if you, do I think that the itineracy and appointment-making thing needs a hard look for how it best missionally engages today? Yes. yes. That doesn't mean I want to do it away with itineracy, but until it is changed, this is what we signed up for. And yep. that's, that's what I've continually told churches as they grieve, whatever, you know, this is who we are. There's no perfect strategy in right. being the church. There just isn't. Yeah, both both have pros and cons. And and that is not to say that is not to say because Sarah, you said like the bishops not out to mess with you. That is not to say that never happens. It, it is. We have been greatly benefited in our conference. We've had a, a string of wonderful bishops. Uh, who who have taken this really seriously? I even remember Bishop Keaton uh, admitting that I don't always get it right. That mm. that that every year at the cabinet we hit a couple of home runs on appointments, and then we strike out on some, and it takes us a year to realize that we struck out. Mm-hmm. I appreciated that that level mm-hmm. yeah. of honesty in that. That doesn't mean that there have not been places at times with some bishops where there are punishments doled out or things like that, and that is equally as sinful as those who w- willfully choose not to participate um, in the system. That doesn't mean that you don't ask for a reconsideration on something. Like, I, I'm see, now that I'm in this, I'm seeing that this probably isn't going to be a good fit. Um, I mean, I've asked for reconsideration on an appointment before. Um, you know, that that's part of it in the consultation. But at the end of the day, if the bishop says this is the appointment that's made, we got to go. And, you know, and churches have to receive the pastors appointed to them. It, it is our system. I, I think those bishops... I- that are that if there if there are bishops right who are who are making punitive appointments that it is the exception again you know it's not the rule yes and that most of our bishops and cabinets come in this with fear and trembling because they know they are affecting the lives of the pastors and their children Uh, they know that they're asking a lot and that they're causing some level of sacrifice and pain and i don't think they take that lightly uh, even a little bit and that makes it easier right to surrender to the system i've also said this in the last few days Uh, so the church that we just landed at had long-term pastors they were here for 11 years they were really beloved they did a whole lot of incredible work and they retired right And so somebody was talking about itineracy, and I said, well, imagine, if you will, um, that that our itineracy wasn't a domino system, right? That it wasn't like one person got pulled and it affected another church. Imagine that the the bishop only filled uh, 
empty spots by incoming pastors. Would you want a newly graduated seminary student who's in the process of candidacy and ordination to be appointed to your well-established long-term church with a million-dollar budget and 20 staff people? Probably mm-hmm. not, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you you want someone with the experience and the gift to do that. And so if that's going to be the case, then you have to surrender to that sort of domino system that understands that we pull effective pastors from churches where they're doing great work out of necessity for another effective church to keep doing effective work, right? It would be harmful and neglectful of our bishops to um, not be willing to ask pastors to make those sacrificial moves from where they're comfortable because they might be sacrificing the health of another church in the process too by putting in somebody uh, who doesn't have the experience to be there, right? And it's just every every business, right? It, it's a business model to some extent. Businesses do this all the time, right? Caterpillar does it as they move people around the world. Um, and it is just part of the process of um, of being Methodist. And as you said, Larry, I like that we get accountability from above, but I like that we get it from below too, um, meaning that churches aren't left to discern for themselves who their next leader should be. 100%. And like I was just talking with some of our folks because, again, this appointment news is very fresh for our congregation. Um, like, we've all had friends who are in the Presbyterian Church, the Lutheran Church, the Episcopal Church. They're on a call system. Their pastor retires, and it's been two years, and they've not been able to find a replacement. Oh, oh, two years yeah. is short. Yeah. Yes. And in the meantime, they're supposed to carry on the ministry and fill the pulpit and do all the things. And it is a gift to our congregations that they have someone watching their backs, helping them through, making sure they can continue with ministry as quickly as possible. Totally. Yeah, I mean, and and when those home runs happen, and I've said this to churches, in in central Illinois, in the middle of cornfields, when you get a home run appointment and you really like your pastor, what do you think the odds are that you would have gone out and found that exact person by yourself? Right, Mm -hmm. right, Most of our churches aren't set up for that search. Mm-hmm. But but part of that is also recognizing that you know the bishop and the cabinet don't always get it a hundred percent right, and there there is a system in that I think so many of our churches feel like they have no say, and that's not itinerancy. That is not what the Book of Discipline says. There is to be a consultative process, and the church can initiate that anytime they want to. Yeah. To say hey, th- th- this this isn't working for us, and and this is why. Um, and that's, uh, that's, that's I, part uh, of it too. And, and most of the time, okay, not most of the time, sometimes local churches don't communicate the process well, and that adds to the problem. Um, I, think, um, I think we have done some harm as pastors when pastors have not owned up to why they're being moved, and they Boom. blame it on the bishop. So if you are a pastor and you've requested a move, you need to own that, right? Because otherwise it makes the bishop look like the big bad uh, you know, henchman who's coming to pull the rug out from under your church. Uh, same if the SPRC has said, this isn't working for us. We're not being as effective in ministry as we should. We've requested a new pastor. I would say the majority of these surprise appointments have actually not been surprises at all, but they're doling blame out on the bishop and the cabinet because they don't want to take ownership of having said, our time here is up. It's been lovely, yeah. right? But we think we're, we're needed in another season somewhere else. Um, and then 
almost always the SPRC is consulted, they have voice and they have process, but the average person in the congregation may not know that, right? They may not know that the DS sat with them and asked them what they want in a new pastor. They may not know that they've been represented in that way. Um, so much of this, I think, can be just um, qualified to miscommunication in the process of appointment making, too. Yeah, or or like you said, uh, not just miscommunication, but intentional bad communication. Uh, we've all heard the pastor stand up there and say, I've been appointed to blah, blah, church. Uh, this is a move I did not ask for. And And I would go so far as to say, even if that's true, even if that's true, you don't say that. No. Because you, you don't committed, you yes. committed to be a part of this system. We are in covenant community with yep. with, with with other ordained elders, licensed pastors, associate members, uh, and this is what we asked for. Yeah. You, you know, I, I I'm still you, you say I'm still processing my emotions around this. Right. Uh, I'm going to miss you. I'm no longer. I'll no longer be your pastor. I'll always be your friend. However you want to say it. But to stand up there and say I didn't ask for this. Yeah. It's always a to, possibility to place to place the blame on someone else damages your credibility in the ministry of the church because it's going to make the transition harder. Yeah. Well, yeah. and I and I I think that's an important piece that and and this is this is one of the the failings of our connectional system in this present moment, Sarah, you alluded to it a little bit ago that, you know, the Bishop and the cabinet only have so many pastors to work with for so many churches. Most of the time we only think about our local church. Yeah. We, we don't yeah. pay attention to the fact that we're a part of a larger mechanism. And, and, and does that mean that it's not without its flaws? No, absolutely not. Our connection is fractured in so many different ways, but for better or worse, this is the connection that we're a part of and we willfully participate in it and that includes saying goodbye to pastors saying hello to the new pastor mm-hmm. hey, I mean, Larry, wouldn't ta- you ta- say talk a little bit oh. go Larry, ahead, talk a little bit about uh, the analogy of, of the baseball the dugout uh, the high view of, of putting players into positions calling the plays on the field you know all, all the baseball players they know how to play but there's somebody telling them even at the pro level what to do or, or what what plays to make right there's a structure yeah. for a reason. Sure. And and I'll give you a perfect example of how that can always be changing. And that's why I think that itineracy needs some tweaking. Um, yeah. Just this year, um, in the midst of all the sign-stealing scandals on MLB, uh, Pitchcom has become a thing for a lot of teams that um, several players on the field and the pitcher are wearing earpieces. And a numeric sound is coming from the catcher to tell them what pitch to throw. So you're not getting the catcher throwing out a bunch of different signs. Uh, I'm a Chicago Cubs fan. We have not adopted this as a team. And I was watching last night's game uh, and the other team, the Braves, they have adopted this. The innings that the Braves were on defense moved so much faster. It, it, it was so streamlined because there's no calling out signs, shaking your head no, can you give me the sign again? It's still calling for the play. It's still managing the game. But it's in a, it's, it's in a much more efficient uh, modern way, and I think I think it's just going to continue to that. That's been the thing in baseball is that games are too small, we're are too long. We're not attracting younger generation to watch the game. The, speeding up the games is going to be a big part of that, and and uh, some of the things they've done have not helped with that at all. This is something that's going to move games along. 
uh, until their pitch com is hacked, right? And and they get stolen well, okay. that way. That, so I mean, I mean that, that that's an ethical issue. So that's, that's yeah. not a time. It's not a timing issue. It's an ethical. So issue. the main idea, the main point outside of you know baseball talk is that there's an there's an organizational strategy and structure to trying to manage that which has been given us to manage. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. If our conference has what we have in our conference, we have approximately 800 churches, maybe down yeah. to like 750 at this point. But if you have 400 pastors, which I think last time I checked was about the number that we had, then sure. bishops and cabinets have only so many choices they can make about where which churches pastors serve and how they're lined up. And if you get... Uh, not your favorite pastor. It may not be uh, out of, um, you know, prejudice. It may be because of the pool of pastors and the choices that have to be made. And there's a level of humility, I think, and openness that we could all adopt, pastors and churches, and understanding the circumstances that we're in um, and and adapting accordingly. Um, Now, we were starting to get into some pros and cons, and I think we've named kind of several of those already (laughs) but like that the pros are that your church doesn't have to navigate the pain of a call system right um the pros are uh for me one of them as a pastor is is knowing that the bishop and the cabinet um prayerfully care for my family and i and if they're going to ask us to sacrifice and make a move they have done so um with a bit of fear and trepidation and my best maximizing my experience in ministry in the process. Uh, Another one of those that we haven't named yet is I'm a woman in ministry, and if I were part of a call system, it is guaranteed (laughs) that um, men would be considered before me and that there would be no one saying, wait a second, give her a second look. I think you're going to be happy with her as your pastor. Um, I Thankfully, more and more, that is not the case. More and more. More and more, more, and more that's not, not the case. case, but there are enough it's prejudices by, in place. It's just moving by inches instead of, instead of feet. Yeah, would right. people have even give me a chance, right, if I were in a call system and not an appointment system? And I think what it can do, I'm not saying it's done it well, but what it can do for pastors of color and for women in ministry is better than what is done independently for, for pastors of color and women. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's one of the reasons I really um, am thankful for the itinerant system. Mm-hmm. Well, and really that kind of speaks to the the nature of the group discernment process that happens, right? You know, you, you have the communication between the pastor and the DS, the communication between the DS and the congregation, the communication between the DS and the cabinet, right, and the bishop. You got all these people involved in this group decision-making process that are discerning what does not only this pastor and their family need, but what does this church need? And, you know, if oftentimes if it's left up to just the pastor or just the church, they're going to go for what they want, which may not necessarily be what they need and what's best for them. Yes. You know, and having other people involved in that process can really be a beneficial thing, you know, and I've I've experienced that myself. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. where where uh, I may not have considered some of the places I've been sent to serve, but it, but it was really a wonderful place to be, which, you know, if it were just up to me, I may have never thought to go, you know, some of the places mm-hmm. I've been. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, that's part of my appointment story. I saw myself not as a established church pastor um, that I, I wanted to plant. That was it. I didn't want to mess around with established churches. And I got sent to established churches. I did get the opportunity to plant while I was still serving an established church. And guess what? 
I'm pretty much better at doing a church turnaround than planting a new church. And I don't want to go back into that world where you're a parachute drop into a new community and here's a small envelope of money, give us a church. Uh, and, and, and I mean, and I'm, Wait, I'm writing my work. dissertation on both and for, for Pete's sake. Like I'm, I'm writing my dissertation on, on protecting the inherited church while, while at the same time helping it to venture into new territory and uncharted waters. I mean, uh, so I, I would have never considered that for myself. That being said, I think there are times where pastors feel stuck. Um, because of the, the, and sometimes it depends on the conference you're in, things like that, where people feel, I mean, I, I got a friend who's out in the Dakotas, um, and because that's where this person went through candidacy and grew up, they can't get out of there now. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if they want to stay part of the Methodist system, no one's <laughs> allowing them to transfer conferences right now. Uh, uh things like that, they, they're just, they're stuck there and that's not where they want to be. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I mean, so, so th- there, there are, I'm saying, uh, there are just flaws within it that need to be perfected. I'm not saying throw the baby out with the bathwater. No, and and that that also names something that is frustrating across all of Methodism right now, is if we worked the process, we likely wouldn't have these problems. But right. uh, folks aren't always abiding by the process, meaning. Uh, it is part of the process that someone is allowed to transfer transfer conferences. If that is being abused, right, by saying no, you can't, that's not how the system was intended. And so, so part Our of my book, the book of discipline is very vague on that. It just says that the two bishops, the sending bishop and the receiving bishop, just have to agree to release the person. That's it, right? But essentially, if one person's going, no, I don't want to let them go because I don't have enough pastors, right? I don't want to lose them. That's an abuse that is harming the pastor that was never intended to be part of the process. And so many of the, I think so many of the issues with itineracy are not because itineracy is bad, but because we've not applied them properly. Um, I would also say this, we need two major changes and they're not systemic. We need two major um, attitude changes. This won't earn me any friends either. Uh, one of those attitude changes we've sort of named that I believe that that pastors need an attitude adjustment to say, bloom where you're planted, do ministry where you are sent, that if God is big enough to be the sovereign God, then he is big enough to use you in the worst appointment, right? Um, even if harm has been done to you. And side note, those who are listening, my family has experienced significant literal abuse that took us through the court systems by the people in our churches. And we stayed and did ministry there because God yep. still had ministry for us to do. And so so don't preach to me that it's harmful to my family and so itineracy needs to go. Nope. Like, you could be in a, a, a hard appointment and that might be a place where the Lord wants to do something spiritually in you. He wants to do something in your family. He wants to do something in, in the church. In the community. So the attitude to say, is, is our sovereign God big enough to work in the faults of this appointment and the failures of this appointment? And trust me, churches need to have that same attitude too, right? You, mm-hmm. It's not your favorite pastor, but can the Lord teach you something through that pastor? Yeah. So that's attitude you, adjustment number one. If you can't be with the one you love... Love, Love the one, the one you're with. <laughs> Rose, rose-colored glasses on ministry. It, we think you know it's not all shiny, sparkly, and new all the time. When you get down and dirty with people, and you are doing real 
tangible ministry, it's messy. It stinks. There are scars to be earned in ministry. You don't get scars unless you're getting whipped on, right? And (laughs) And sometimes that happens. And that would happen in an itinerant system or a call system. It's oh, not like... It maybe more. <laughs> maybe even more. So it's not like throwing yeah. the baby out with the bathwater solves that problem. It doesn't solve no. that problem. No. Uh, the other attitude adjustment is this, is we have assumed an attitude of mistrust in our system instead of trust in the Ooh. system. And Ooh, um, that. So there are both pastors... Well, all three pastors, churches, and leadership who are assuming the worst. They're out to get me. This is punitive. They've done it on purpose. They want me to, you know, um, suffer for a while um, instead of assuming the best, right, of our bishops and cabinets and saying, they're dealing with the hands that they've got. They're in a difficult situation of not having enough pastors. Uh, there are unhealthy churches that are holding uh power strings that that need to be cut and haven't been cut and um and my bishop and cabinet would want effective ministry in the same way i would want effective ministry right and they're trying to accomplish that in the system with with the cards that they've been dealt and i think the assumption of mistrust from our pastors towards our denominational leaders has harmed us significantly and i know i'll get some email about that one too Again, not because there's not exceptions to the rule. There are certainly situations where people have been harmed um, for manipulative reasons, but I think it has the attitude of mistrust has swept across the denomination in the matters of itineracy in a way that's hurting even the majority, right, of pastors. And who do we serve? We, we serve the redeeming God. We serve the resurrected Christ. We serve, we serve a God that overcomes and turns the ugly into beautiful with enough time and with surrender. This is the God we serve. So how do we model that in our lives? Well, you know, sometimes we have to have an attitude adjustment, like you said, and have our priorities put uh, back in line. Uh, but this this uh, system of itineracy, it's it's for the health of the church. It's for the health of the pastors, and it doesn't always line up. That missional match that we, we're we're working toward within our system, bishop, cabinet, and church, and pastors, uh, it doesn't always it doesn't always make sense at the beginning either. Sometimes it doesn't make sense until a long time down the road when seeds have been planted, they've watered, they've grown, they've lived their life cycle, and they're like, wow, I'm so glad that that worked out that I was there or that they were a part of my life because I learned some lessons that I needed at another time in my life. But the only way you're going to learn those lessons is to put your hands to the plow and shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that, that's, that's true for pastor and church. And, and, pastor and, th- th- and th- church th- th- and bishop. And before and, and we get hate mail saying that we're signing off on the abuse of pastors and their families no. by the itinerant system, no, right? No, there are, are protections in, in place for that. And um, and if that's the case, it is the exception. But the rate in which pastors walk around complaining about their appointment or churches walk around complaining about their pastor when it's matters of comfort or inconvenience, um, we need an attitude adjustment. Well, and I think just to loop this back around to the previous conversation that we've had about, you know, apostolic evangelistic giftings versus shepherd teacher giftings, if you see your role as a pastor in churches, if you see your pastor's role 
as they are there to help you grow, right? You know, not that I expect certain entitlements from, you know, my role as clergy and this church has to treat me this certain way or whatever. No, I'm appointed. I've been sent here by the bishop to help these people do the work of ministry, and I'm going to help build them up and grow them in that work. Keep mission first, you know, put your hands to the plow, do good work, and see yourself as sent there to help, right? Uh, it, you know, embrace those apostolic evangelistic aspects of ministry mm-hmm. instead of, you know, uh, holding on, you know, clutching your union card, um, complaining about your entitlements. That's that's not a way to grow a church, <laughs> you know. No, so, so, so I, th- I, I think we all ended up in the same place here. And, and that yeah. is that for us as Wesleyans, itineracy is something worth protecting. It's not for everybody. I get yeah. that. So there are other yeah. church systems that do that. That does not mean that there doesn't need to be several seismic shifts that happen around itineracy. First and foremost, our attitude is clergy about it. Mm-hmm. Two, yep. o- openness and transparency from the cabinet on how they are evaluating people for missional matches and a clear explanation to churches of what their role is in the consultative process and how they can engage that. Because there are times that it is easy to hurl at a bishop or a cabinet, well, we were never consulted about this. Because, as Sarah said, there's a lack of communication around it. I'm not saying throw itineracy out. I'm saying if we're going to do it, we need to embrace it in in the spirit of Wesleyanism and and, and make sure that we're watching over it in love. And not just using it as a system of of moving pegs on a chessboard around to to fill this this appointment here and try to do our best to match. But from top to bottom, how are we going to engage this in a way that brings glory to God and builds the kingdom and deploys the most people into the harvest field for kingdom impact? And that's where Gabe wants to go. Hit it. Well, you know, kingdom impact. Teams move at the speed of trust. The disciples trusted their rabbi, Jesus. And, and, and as Sarah noted earlier, we have, you know, we're all human and there has been, there has been broken trust, broken covenant within uh, the United Methodist Church, within the system. And just maybe just from situation to situation, not systemic, but just in, in the small scope. But Jesus himself went through all the towns and the villages Jesus taught in the synagogues and he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. He healed every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. This is from Matthew chapter 9. Because the crowds were harassed. The crowds felt helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, those following him, he said, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. And, you know, we, we often give credit to Wesley and Coke and Asbury for this itinerant system that we find ourselves in as United Methodists. And yet right there, Matthew 9, as a witness, Matthew is sharing Jesus himself was an itinerant preacher going throughout Galilee and sharing the good news that the kingdom of heaven had come. And we are to go out and just connect to our communities, to be a part of them, to encourage them, and for them to encourage us and to share through the work of the Holy Spirit. So just just a touch point. There's so much more theology that we could get into, uh, but that needed to be shared, I think, in this discussion. Right. It's the reminder that like it is not about our comfort, right? It is about the mission. It is not about... Uh, uh, 
politics and systems, right? It's about the call and not just for the pastor, but for the churches too. So churches embracing a pastor that is not their favorite and saying, what does God want to teach us through this person at this time? How can their gifts stretch us is as important as the pastor saying, I've been planted here for this season, as hard as it may be, God wants to do something. And our eyes fixed on the mission, right, will change a lot of that. Um, There is a lot of talk around, you know, our denomination about how people think it should change. There are definitely critics of itineracy. Um, uh, We have uh, a couple of friends who are on that critics of itineracy list and uh, why it's a bad idea, why it needs to change. If you guys could reimagine anything around itineracy, what would you reimagine around it? What would be different? I don't know that it's so much reimagining as truly embracing what is written on paper the openness of the consultative process from start to finish because we all know a pastor who at some point told their superintendent i would like to stay where i'm at the church said they'd like for their pastor to stay and they got moved anyway that's what breeds the mistrust if we communicate mm-hmm. the system openly then yeah uh then, then, then that that solves a lot of that. I mean, because because right now, what gets the press is things that are happening, like at Mount Bethel in Georgia, where mm-hmm. the pastor was like, "I wasn't consulted, and I was moved, and I'm not leaving." Well, that's bull on 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 the bishop's part and the pastor's part because there's not been openness in that conversation. And then you've got people in the Western jurisdiction crying that that they're being put in bad appointments based on race. We have no idea what kind of consultative process was was followed because it's so different in every conference. So it's not mm. so much reimagining as just look in the discipline what it says it's supposed to be and let's educate people uh, on it. And if you don't want to participate in an itinerant system, there are other systems out there that are bringing, bringing glory to God and advancing the kingdom of God. True. Yep. Yeah. I'd say for and- me, it's what kind of clergy are we raising up on a denominational on the denominational side of things, and then on the on the church side of things, what are we expecting of clergy? Right. So um, when when we're training our clergy, are we training clergy to be hospice chaplains for Boom. dying churches, or are we claim are we training clergy to be um, you know like we've been talking about the those original circuit writers? Their call, their ministry was one that relied heavily upon apostolic and evangelistic gifting. So is that what kind of clergy we're training? And then on the congregational side, right? You know, are we uh, as a church? Do we want a pastor who's going to be basically our cruise ship chap- chaplain, right? You know, and they're going to be there at our every beck and call. We pay their salary, so we command their time. Or do we see them as sent to us to come alongside us to help us carry out the work of ministry in the world um, in a way that that uh, bears witness to the life changing power of Jesus Christ? Mm-hmm. You know, those are two very different paradigms of ministry. And I would say, you know, we've as we've uh, shifted from a movement to an institution, we have uh, uh, really leaned heavily upon the chaplaincy model of of training. Uh, and deploying pastors, church and we'll pastor have 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 leaned on that. Yes, because I mean, uh, pastor churches expect it. Some pastors they, they want their paycheck, want their entitlements. We all love our entitlements. I mean, don't take my salary, don't take my pension. 
But it's about more than that. I mean, the, the early circuit riders that we've talked about, when they would gather at annual conference and sing an Are We Yet Alive, like we do at annual conference every year, it was very literally because they were asking the question, <laughs> who's not here? Yeah. Who died out on their circuit yeah. in the last year? And are we yet alive? And we have now, no now idea. We're, now we're we asking no it figuratively. Are we still alive? Like, really, are we, are we actually yeah. Yeah. alive still? We spend all we of digress. our time. We, we argue about our entitlements instead of annual the, the conference being about our missional and evangelistic strategy. That's a whole different podcast. Yeah, yeah, and and I will be the first to say, as a preacher's kid and now a clergy couple who has a preacher's kid, there are benefits and protections that are very important for the conference to supply to pastors, right? Sure. Because like the military, if we're signing up to go where we're sent and we're put in the mission field and there are abuses and sacrifices that come with it, it is very important that you take as good care of me as you can and of my family and that they're not literally like you know, hung out to dry just because of the call. So uh, in our in our culture's tendency to talk extremes, I don't want to land there either. We're like, pastors and churches are meant to sacrifice and it, it doesn't matter the cost. No, I care very much about my child's spirituality and that he moves Amen. through being a preacher's kid with his faith intact. And many people mm-hmm. that has not been the case for and many um, many pastors and their families have experienced harms uh, in the at, the at the hands of ministry that have uh, directly hurt the faith and salvation of their children. And I'll be yeah. the first to say in an SPRC meeting that um, my ministry won't come at the sake of my child's salvation, right? Their faith in Christ. Right. And so there are some things in place. Like I'll, we'll hear. I'm sure we've all had these questions. Like, uh, why do you get a house? My my work doesn't pay for my house. And I, my response very nicely, very tactfully is, well, right, but like because the bishop could call me in six months and say, you have to move, if I'm going to live a life on the edge that says I'll go where the bishop sends me, then it is the responsibility of the church and the bishop and the cabinet to make sure me and my family are physically cared for by having a home, right? Because I couldn't buy a home every year if that's what the bishop, you know, called for me. And so there are some things that may seem unfair to the layperson about the benefits that are um, part of the the job. I'm I even hesitate to call them benefits. I think they're um, they're responsibly caring for the pastor and their family who are living this life of itineracy and sacrifice. And and when people complain about it, you go. Um, Right. But, you know, you and your family, if you've chosen to live away from your immediate family to pursue your career, that is your choice, right? Uh, Mine is my choice in the extent that I signed up for itineracy, but I don't have the power to say, I'm going to stay at this church because it's 10 miles from my immediate family and I want to be near them. I I don't have the power to do that. Most people also don't know that pastors are not supposed to have other jobs, right? We're not supposed to earn other sources of income. So the thing like a minimum salary for pastor is a protection. 
I cannot, like a, a nurse, I can't, I can't nurse during the day and then go um, wait tables at night. I'm literally not allowed to do that. And so the base, um, like a minimum salary that is a protection for the sacrifices that come with the job. Some people label them as entitlements and some of those are when the boundaries around your job are so strict, right? that it is then the responsibility of the church and the bishop and the cabinet to ensure some provisions, right, for you and for your family. And so just a little side note that um, I know sometimes those things are held in tension with itineracy, um, but it's part of the sacrificial job that we do too. Yeah. Well, since you brought up houses, um, <laughs> let's, uh, let's play a quick little would you rather, and maybe we can all come up with, one, uh, we all happen to live in parsonages. That means a house that's provided by the church. Uh, we all have been very blessed throughout our careers. We were talking about this before we started with uh, well-appointed homes that met the needs of our families at that time. That being said, we have all heard some horror stories uh, <laughs> out there. So pulling from some of those, who's got a would you rather? Uh, parsonage edition. That's so hard, Larry. It's just... It, because it's uh, the, you're talking about because we think we go to the negative, right? We think about the negative. Like, would you rather well, give follow me a, a pastor? Then. Well, I know. I, I well, yeah. That might. That's where I go. I go to the negative. So, like, yeah, I got to think of the positive. But uh, I got a negative. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> let's hear it. Like, hey, let's just embrace it. This is yeah. uh, even the lay people like, need to know that sometimes parsonage living is not ideal, right? It's right. it's okay. Yeah, like uh, night, right, nightmare, ahead, okay. nightmare edition. Would would you rather uh, live in a parsonage with severe pet damage or foundation issues? Uh, foundation, 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 foundation. So like yep. the house could fall in as long as you don't have to, you know, deal with pet damage. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Would Would you rather have? Um, uh, green shag carpet or floor to ceiling wainscoting? Uh, Give me the wainscoting. I'll paint like, it. Like, like, all like dark, dark wood panel. Like yeah. paneling. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah you, yep, you can paint paneling. wainscoting. Paneling. Yeah. You can you paint can it. You can paint that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Would you rather um, have really old windows that, you know, that, that didn't keep it warm in the winter or a furnace that 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 just... Was very non-efficient. So me, you had that, me the you had those you had those bills to pay. So our our first parsonage was kind of actually like that. We loved the home, <laughs> but we had to um, winter seal all of our windows, like the cling wrap, the plastic cling wrap, wrap. Yeah, the, 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 yeah. the plastic with the hair dryer. Yes. We had we had to do, and we and we loved that house. We wouldn't have traded it for anything, but it was not mm. energy efficient in the winter time. Ooh, was, <laughs> I got another one. All right, okay. or maybe go ahead, Sarah. You go first. Uh, I've got a couple. Yeah. I've got a couple. Let's see. Would you rather nosy eavesdropping neighbor that you didn't choose, Ooh. right? Because it's a parsonage, Ooh. or Ooh. the loud, obnoxious, like partying in the middle of the night neighbor? Eavesdropping. Oh, yeah, I've had both. Oh. Um, <laughs> I take the party. I missed what Adam said. Uh, no, I, I would much rather have like a nosy eavesdropping neighbor because at least I could, I can sleep at night. 
knowing that she might be oh. watching me, but you know, I would still be sleeping. So, oh, it's a she. Well, no, oh, I didn't say Adam. that. I didn't say that. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, but you sn- you sleep like a Lionel train. Uh, I mean. so we, we, we've actually we've actually had both of those those scenarios as well. The, in the case, and I wouldn't say eavesdropping neighbors. Um, there was the potential for eavesdropping because our backyard in Canton faced our backyard faced towards three other houses, and two of the three were church members, uh, and they they were lovely people. Uh, not eavesdropping. At, at they just all. knew the, your every move. Yeah, they knew my every move. So give me the loud partiers. Um, would you rather? Would you rather live next to the church, whether it's no, no, r- rural or no. suburban? Or would you rather live not next to the church and just somewhere not, else in like yeah, not next? Yeah, having away, done, having done away. both, not next to the church. Yeah. So when when um, you lived, when you had your parsonage next to the church, Adam, did you have the church phone ring in your house? No, I the the previous pastor did. The first thing I did when I got there was unplug every single one of those phones. That I was, was like, brilliant. nope, so, not here. I was in the parsonage for about six months before we got married, and the church phone would ring at home, and she disconnected that puppy. That <laughs> Good, or or like an intercom system. There's been churches with an intercom system connected uh-huh. to the house. Nope. Yeah. Mm-mm. Yeah. All right. I'm going to spin off of that one a little bit. Would you rather, uh, okay, no, I'm changing my mind. All right. Would you rather, uh, 60s ranch style home, uh, parsonage or Victorian era, uh, Victoria, like farmhouse era parsonage home? Ooh, farmhouse. Give me the 60s ranch. Just because I've always had 60s ranch. <laughs> I don't know. I think both, I both come with their both. share. You know, you've, you've got the potential for like old windows and foundation issues and leaky basement and stuff like that in a Victorian house. Yeah. One of the neatest so, parsages we ever lived in, 1914. That, that, uh, I mean, that's over 100 years old now. And that, beautiful, beautiful place. Hmm. All that, all that to say, in the midst of our would you rather's, we all, we all love our homes. And we're, we're grateful <laughs> yes. for uh, yes. them being provided yes. for us, so so we can, like Sarah said, pick up and 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 move uh, as uh, as there is missional need. Uh, but that is all the time we have for today. Uh, and you heard it from us, uh, those of you listening. We get that there are people all over the place with this itineracy thing and appointment making. Uh, some people love it. Some are indifferent. Some absolutely loathe it. Uh, but what we do know is that it is in, in, it's an ingrained part of our Wesleyan heritage, and mm-hmm. we all la- land on it's something worth protecting, even if it even if there's some re- reimagining that needs to happen for our day. But we continue to trust that no matter how flawed a system is, that God works through all of this, bringing pastors and churches together in a way that 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 build the kingdom. Um, so that's all we've got for today. Join us next time. Uh, we'll be uh, talking about uh, at-home discipleship Monday through Saturday, that what happens in your home is uh, equally, if not more important than what happens on Sunday mornings, uh, based off of a conversation that I had with someone recently about travel sports uh, and how to uh, worship together as a family uh, when you're when you're out of town and not accessible to your church or a live stream. So we're going to be uh, talking about that next time. Until then, thanks for joining us on Midnight Theology. And remember, if you're actually listening to this at midnight, you're probably a United Methodist pastor who's packing up their home right now, and we salute you. See you next time.